0: You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Hey, welcome to Real Investor Radio. I'm Craig Fuhr, sitting here with my partner, Jack Bevere. Uh, This is episode number three. Welcome. We're going to talk today about uh, sort of what's going on in institutional money in the residential market, uh, where they are right now, how they got into the market, sort of the evolution and what that means to you as a investor today. So Jack, welcome.
1: Yeah, looking forward to today's conversation. It's always interesting to see what kind of Wall Street's up to and and what that
0: means for, you know, if that's going to affect our business, what we should do as a result of it. We're taking the training wheels off of this thing. We've got the first two in the can and we're working on uh, number three and four today. Excited. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, we're ready to roll. So let's jump in, Jack. You know, One of the things uh, that uh, we've been talking about offline lately is sort of You know, the evolution, if you will, of institutional buyers, Wall Street, for lack of a better word, into the market. And so, you know, a lot of movement going on over the last uh, year or so uh, with institutional buyers. And so let's talk about that today. But um, sort of the fundamental idea of this episode is. what are the suits in Wall Street doing right now? Right, yeah. What's their mentality and sort of that evolution of uh, where they've come from? So why don't we talk about that quickly, Jack? Like, When do these guys get into the market? How do they get into the market? And, and uh, how, should we, how, how do we play the game with them?
1: Yeah. So everyone listening to this knows that single family real estate has been an investable asset class for a very, very long time. But really prior to 2012, Wall Street wasn't so sure that that was the case. In the wake of the Great Recession, really around the 2012 2013 timeframe, uh, a lot of institutional money, you know, New York money, got uh, aggregated to take advantage of the very low real estate prices that were available in the market at that time, and they started becoming a significant factor to the real estate investment space, particularly in certain markets. They were very very prominent in the Sun Belt, mm-hmm. uh, and though. They still represent a very small percentage of the overall ownership of single family houses. They were absolutely market moving for the past decade. Yeah, And so, you know, what's really interesting right now is that they've taken a pause. And so they've been on this buying spree. A ten, they were on a 10 year buying spree, gobbling up as many houses as they possibly could. Uh, there's now three public REITs that are institutionally owned who only own single family real estate. Uh, there's another three very large private equity firms that own uh, that own a lot of real estate. Kind of when you when, when people are talking about this market and what's going on with the institutions, these six entities: American Homes for Rent, Invitation Homes, TriCon Residential, First Key Homes, Progress Residential, and Vinebrook Homes are kind of the biggest names in on the single family side. There are others for mm-hmm. sure, but. Uh, those six have been big factors in mostly the Sunbelt with the exception of Vinebrook. They're more of a uh, tertiary market buyer, kind of, a, I think, Ohio, uh, St. Louis, Tennessee. So they, by and large, the Sunbelt actors, though, have really kind of pressed pause mm-hmm. recently. And so I, find that, you know, I found that extremely interesting. It's, it's worth taking note. They, they got in when the getting was good. Right. They
0: you know, bought
1: like crazy for 10 years and they're pressing pause right now.
0: Yeah. A couple of resources uh, for today's show you can find it in the show notes. There was a story that I took a look at. Uh, Wall Street is running away from the housing market. So it talks about uh, some of the facts from the story uh, where, you know, pandemic housing boom saw a massive flood of institutional home buying. They mentioned Open Door and Blackstone. Uh, obviously, companies that most uh, investors in, on Main Street have, have heard about, um, but those owning over a thousand houses, Jack, uh, have bought ninety percent fewer homes in January and February of this year than they did in the first two months of 2022. Is that what you're saying as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Also, just a, just an important distinction, just to to keep everyone's like you know brains thinking about this the right way. So there is the institutional ownership of single family real estate for the long-term. So those like American Homes for Rent, Invitation, which is owned by Black... Or, sorry, was owned by Blackstone, but is now public. Mm -hmm. uh, Tricon. Those guys are long-term holders of real estate versus an open-door offer pad, you know, that iBuying model, Mm -hmm. which is really never intended. (laughs) They're not trying to own any houses long-term. Yeah. Though uh, flipping over the past 18 months has been a little bit of catching a falling knife for them. But... uh, and they're having issues around just purely home price appreciation. You know, th- you know, they've been, they were buying- you know, if you bought in, they were buying very actively at the peak and in volatile markets, uh, because that's where they were making money, you know, on the run-up, they were making money in those volatile markets that were having big ups, uh, you know, uh, big upswings in home price appreciation, sure. but they were, they were there when the knife started falling back down. And so they've, um, They've had difficulties and uh, over the past 18 months, you know, maintain Well, they have always had a hard time maintaining profitability, but uh, particularly over the past uh, over the past 18 months. But um, I think that that's, you know, and, and there are certainly lessons that can be taken uh, as a flipper if you're active in the in markets next to those guys but for the rental property investors, you know, the long-term landlord looking to build wealth over a long period of time, I think it's worth making you know taking note that the institutional buyers have also pressed pause because there's a I think that there's still a lot of confidence in the long-term value proposition of American real estate, American residential real estate. Mm-hmm. We're still underbuilding relative to household formation. So if that's the case, and this is a good investment long-term, what we wanted to dig in today is, well, why are these guys
0: pausing? Yeah, Why aren't they just continuing to buy in all markets? You mentioned invitation homes. Uh, this uh, story that I referenced uh, talks about them being the largest home, uh, the largest owner of residential homes, at least at the time that that was published, 83,000 homes that they own. And uh, that's single family rental homes, but they've recently became a net seller In the first quarter of 2023, Invitation Homes bought 194 homes while it sold off 297 in Q1 2023. Then in uh, 2022, same quarter, they purchased 822 homes in first quarter of 22 and sold 147. So talk about more about that, you know, sort of sitting on the sidelines right now, they're sensing the headwinds. And so you know they're just kind of pulling money back from the table a little bit yeah
1: sure so rewinding to kind of ni- 2018 19 2021 you know these these entities are buying houses particularly in the Sun Belt, like crazy and there's a lot of wholesalers out there who mm-hmm. made a lot of money uh wholesaling to this to these folks because frankly they were paying 100% of value 110% of value in mm-hmm. some cases mm-hmm. and so all the wholesalers are saying like this is crazy. Like if I fix, if I bought that house and I fixed it up and I resold it after closing costs, I'd be losing money. And yet these, you know, the, the, these, all these, you know, sharp young kids are, are willing to pay this. And it was almost a punchline for a couple of years. there, where like, these guys are idiots. Yeah. Like they're, they're just, they're buying it hundred percent of value. Like, I don't understand how they're doing it, but you know, they must have some long term view of what's going to go in the market and they're just placing capital. So, And I think it's important to dig into that because uh, it explains, I think, a lot of what has changed in their behavior. They were never the dumb money. They were never idiots. Yeah. They had an advantage that we as Main Street real estate investors didn't have, and that was cost of capital. They had access, because they were buying so many houses and deploying so much capital, when they go get a loan, it's called doing a securitization. And they're doing a $300 million securitization and placing bonds, which is just raising debt. All that means is just raising debt to pension funds and insurance companies who at the time were just flush with cash. Mm -hmm. Interest rates were at zero. And so these institutions were buying these houses and then financing them and getting 2%, raising money at 2%, 3% when Main Street was giddy. Right over borrowing money at four and five percent, Wall Street was uber giddy. like they're borrowing money at two to three. And so when they quote unquote overpaid for those houses, they were still able to produce a net yield on that rental income, sure. that once they levered it with two and a half percent money, provided a double digit levered return to the their investors, which is what their mandate was. you know it's hey, I want to deploy capital into American real estate and I want a double digit. A uh, double digit, you know, IRR on uh, on that deal, and given how cheap the capital was, they were able to do that. So they weren't idiots; they just had a different
0: competitive advantage than we did. You said uh, before we turned the mics on today that their game is different than your game, right? Yeah. The game that they were playing, or that they are playing, was to find the cheapest money. They were out there raising the cheapest capital possible. Uh, that was that was clearly willing to invest, right? While the average investor on Main Street, their game was always finding the cheapest houses, right? Right. So talk about that. Yeah. So you know,
1: at the time, the the, the, the Wall Street investor was just the best bid because it had the access to the cheapest cost of capital, and so you could make a and folks were making thirty, forty thousand dollar wholesale spreads selling these pretty houses in Jacksonville and Charlotte and Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, in Arizona to, uh, to the, to these wall street firms. Now, what has changed though, is that, that, that cheap capital is no longer available. So with the rise of interest rates in 2022, uh, the securitization market, uh, the cost of that capital is now
0: up three or 400 basis points, uh, since then. And maybe the pension funds and some of the other, you know, Really cheap money out there that these guys were using isn't so giddy about the single-family residential market anymore, or is that the case? Or I think it's still the case
1: that Wall Street is generally bullish on American residential real estate long term. Long term, it's just that the economics don't make that much sense. Don't make any sense today uh, because we haven't seen a decrease in housing prices. So you know, these guys' game was that hey, I'm buying houses at 100 percent of value, but I can still produce a five cap return, and I'm going to go borrow money at two and a half percent. Well, today. If they did that securitization, they'd be raising money above five percent, and but the housing prices haven't come down, and the rents haven't continued to go up enough such that they can produce a they can buy houses at a seven and a half cap or an eight cap, which mm-hmm. is where they would need to be buying houses today to make a you know solid uh, so, that same solid levered levered return. So I think that you know this the simple answer is that. That Wall Street has said, "Hey, you know, I can't. It's not accretive for me to to buy houses right now, given where my cost of debt is. So I'm just going to sit back, manage my portfolio. Uh, they're ending, you know, I'm still open for business, sure, but I'm open for business at a seven and a half cap. So they found 189 of those in, in you know, in the first quarter, mm-hmm. and they're con- going to continue to call the portfolio because when you buy that many houses, you're going to make some mistakes." Or there's going to be some houses where it makes sense to sell those for whether it's gone up in value a tremendous amount or or just because you think of the house is a dog and you made a mistake. So they're going to continue to call the portfolio. They're still technically open for business, but their bids are $30,000, $40,000 off of where they were before. And so you just don't have the sellers willing to capitulate at that same level. And so their volumes are, are down tremendously.
0: I'm interested in... Um you know, I see a flight to the to the southern markets, to the to the Sunbelt markets. Is it just because we're seeing a, a net positive migration to those markets? Is it better tax code or, or you know, the municipality is more willing to, you know, have these so many rentals in neighborhoods, things that like, have they eased restrictions on land, things like that. Why are so many of these companies so interested in the Sunbelt? States, yeah, I think it's all those reasons for sure. You're a lender nationwide. Dominion Capital is a lender nationwide for fix and flip uh, bridge loans, as well as well as DSCR loans, which we talked about in episode two. You see markets all over the country. Do you prefer to be in? In some Belt states, or do you have no preference? Uh, on the bridge side, I mean, there's a market everywhere, right?
1: Like the, the bridge business is much more about the investor adding value by f- buying it well and then doing a renovation that increases the value of the property. And so the hold period is 10 months um, on average. So, not as, don't really care as much, frankly, about the 10 year prospects for an area because mm-hmm. it's a 10 month trade. Uh, and, and that's fine. For on the rental property side of thing, I do think that, that all those factors are drivers for why you see a lot of uh, a lot of institutional activity in the Sunbelt. Also, just the year built, I think, was a big driver, mm. right? Like it's when, when you're trying to deploy very large amounts of capital into very large amounts of capital into real estate, well, that the, the operations of that real estate need to be easier, right? you know, if, if, you're, if your mandate is to deploy $500 million, well, you can do it a whole lot faster buying houses built in 2010. than 1910. Yeah, then 1910 <laughs> right. and trying to do it on the South side of Chicago or Baltimore or New York or Philly. Hmm. So uh, just the, I, think, I think just the ability operationally to scale favors the South, in addition to all the reasons that you were talking about uh, uh, from a demographic point of view, where that's where we're seeing population increase over time. So when you're going to make a 10 plus year bet, that feels like a, a stronger 10 plus year bet.
0: So let's talk about some of the players that uh, you mentioned. I I think you have a pretty good list here. Um, Jump into that. I was, uh, one of a couple other factoids I saw, uh, in a different story, uh, talking about yield street, yield street, very large home buyer has slashed its buying levels 90% as of January. So, uh, they're expecting, uh, the, the, this is the guy who runs it. Yoshi is his last name. They expect a 10 to, 10 to 15% decline, which I think we've seen. And then they're looking for, uh, from December to December of next year, this guy is predicting a 20 to 25% decline in housing prices. Are you feeling that? Yeah. It's a bit heavy. That's been something that I, we've been
1: watching like a hawk, because we are in the, on the bridge lending space that would affect us, right? Mm-hmm. We want our borrowers to be profitable, and if they hit a you know hit a twenty percent headwind on real estate values, well, they you know where's the money left for them? Right. We haven't seen as much of a decline. We have seen declines on in particular submarkets. I would say particular submarkets, and it's more driven by affordability than anything else. Mm. So it's the the high cost per square foot areas uh, have come down more significantly. But the you know the two hundred thousand dollar to six hundred thousand dollar uh, houses we haven't seen a whole lot of pressure uh, in that segment from a housing price point of view. Those have been pretty flat, maybe down five percent. Uh, whereas if you were in the five hundred dollars a foot plus space, uh, you know parts of California, New York, DC, we've we saw the most significant declines there. You know notably or uh, you know kind of famously, uh, Seattle is getting crushed. Um, Idaho is getting crushed because there was a ton of migration there during COVID. Uh, And so people are kind of moving, selling that second house and moving back. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've seen, you know, 15, sometimes as high as 20% declines in, in those, some of those sub markets. But I think for kind of like the bread and butter housing that that these institutional investors are buying for the long term, I mean, their average cost basis is in the low 200s. Maybe it's probably probably climbed up a little bit to maybe the high 200s at this point is a typical deal that that an institutional investor is buying. Can you break that down a little bit? Like what? Just, the, you know, so a typical deals, they're they're buying a house for two, you know, I'm making up numbers I'm sure, here, right? Uh, but they're, you know, they're buying a house for 225 grand, they're going to put $25,000 into it, and they're going to rent it. So they're in for 250 grand, and they're going to rent it for $2,000 a month. Okay. That would be kind of bread and butter institutional, you know, deal in the suburbs of Charlotte. Mm-hmm. So in that price point, we really haven't seen, you know, affordability is still the driver, I think, for... Or is still a is still a, a big concern, a big a big issue, and so having access to uh, affordable inventory, you know, there's still tremendous demand for affordable inventory in in the country, really, and so uh, we really haven't seen much, if any, declines in that really in that affordable segment. Okay, so that's been a, uh, I think that's been kind of a you know, uh, there's been a a, a a bottom there that's a that that keeps keeps those prices up. So we haven't seen, uh, we haven't seen those kind of declines
0: there. All right. So players, you know, did you want to go into that real quick Uh, where these guys are right now? I see you've got a, a graph of sorts here on the table. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, uh, I'm referring to some
1: uh, Zellman investment banking research. Zellman is a uh, phenomenal uh, firm that uh, founded by Ivy Zellman they have or they do investment banking they do research and they uh they pub- sorry they publish a lot of research th- that you can buy they give a little bit of out a little bit of it out for free mm-hmm. right, as a teaser and they do a lot of m and a uh, and investment banking work in uh residential real estate home building building products kind of anything that touches housing and so they, uh, they've been, I've been following their research for, for over 10 years. The firm was recently acquired by Walker Dunlop, which is a large broker for, uh, both real estate and financial products. And, uh, so I think it's a nice addition to Walker Dunlop to have Zellman as their research arm. Uh, so I've been following Zellman research for like 10 years and, uh, They have a, uh, they put out really good stuff on what's going on in kind of the largest single family rental portfolios. Uh, So that's the research that I was referencing when I came up with those six names. They've also got kind of like a snapshot report to say like, hey, what's happened over the past quarter? And uh, I'm sure I saw these, I saw some articles on this as well, but something that I thought was really interesting was a recent announcement that, uh, that Predium is going to acquire 4,000 single family houses from DR Horton, which is one of the large national builders. Talk about Predium, Yeah. Yeah. So Pretium is a really interesting, Pretium like the biggest name y- you never heard. Um, <laughs> they're behind a lot of the brands that you know, uh, like institutional brands, but they're a, uh, I think they're something like a $50 billion private equity firm. And they own Anchor Loans, which is a very prominent fix and flip lender. Uh, they bought Anchor in, in uh, late 2021. They own Deep Haven, which is a, a non-qualified mortgage lender. So they, they, and they do a lot of DSCR loans. Okay. Um, so they're a big buyer of DSCR loans. They own Havenbrook, which was a firm that I met when we were buying houses in Atlanta between 2011 and 2015. They were very active down there. They moved to some other markets as well. But uh, Predium bought Havenbrook early. They own Progress Residential, which is, I think, at this point, they're right there neck and neck with Invitation Homes in terms of having the most properties hmm. that they own. Uh, and then Celine uh, Celine Finance, who is, uh, I think, an insurance company subsidiary that's very active in buying both bridge loans and on the DSCR side. So they're kind of like they're the money behind the name, the institutional names. They're the money behind a lot. Of like single family residential activity. Yeah, the
0: smart guys who go out and raise great capital to fund
1: all of these companies, right? Yeah, with a very, and they seem to have, you know, their mandate is they have a very long term bullish view of American residential real estate. And so they've got their hands really in a lot of different segments of the business.
0: Sort of the 800 pound gorilla that uh, got in the game early in terms of let's go out and find that. You know really competitive capital right that was their competitive advantage for a long long time right yeah
1: absolutely they, they, they have the ability to access insurance company money large pools of private equity to do opportunistic things to do they have you know they can do securitizations no problem uh, and so they're deploying that through a number of different platforms that main street investors do interact with on a daily basis right and so what are they doing these days Well, this acquisition of four thousand rental homes in the B two R space from DR Horton, I think, is the largest, uh, largest transaction like of its kind. I think it's still, it's definitely a very strong signal that they're not going anywhere, right, and that they're still very bullish on the, the, you know, the American residential real estate market. Yeah, and uh, so you've never really seen a partnership between uh, such a large partnership between uh, a public builder like a DR Horton and this. Uh, and this institutional capital. So I, I think it signals. My point is, I think it signals that. Why, why do we care, right? I think it signals that just because institutional real, uh, sorry, institutional capital has paused in the short term on buying doesn't mean at all that they are out or that 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 they are just you know that, that they are. Hey, they, we got our portfolio and we're just going to manage that and we'll like you know see you later. They'll be back. They're still doing deals. They still love the space. It's just not the right time for them to buy one-at-a-time single-family houses. Right. But they're still very interested in exposure to single-family real estate. And I, and I think that institutional capital is only going to get more and more prominent you know, over the next 20 years.
0: Yeah, I, I think I read uh, in some report that uh, by 2030, perhaps it was 2050, that you know, Wall Street firms uh, like Pretium and others are looking to own about 40% of the residential market. They'll basically be renting back at that point to average Americans, right? And so the B2R you mentioned, uh, I probably want to break that down for folks who aren't uh, in the know on that. So it's build to rent. And we're going to talk about that in specifically in an upcoming episode. But um, briefly, why, why is that such a thing now? Like uh, it was a major topic at IM, IMM when you were there. Um, you guys uh, just had the your real estate, uh, real investors roundtable here, and I know it was a topic at that. So explain to folks B two R and how it's becoming uh, quite the thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: So the build the build to rent space is just the ideas that uh, take lo- you know infill lots or small subdivisions and or large subdivisions, mm-hmm. and and build the houses on it. And instead of selling them to individual homeowners, we're just going to keep those and rent them out, rent the entire community. So the entire community, it's basically a, a horizontal apartment, apartment building. building, right? And the the idea is that the landlord can, you know, put it, putting out a premium product, they can control the environment, perhaps they can get a little bit of a premium rent for it. But the owner, or I'm sorry, the occupant rather, uh, has a a lifestyle that is more akin to raising a family because they've got a yard, they can have a dog, you know, they've got, there's maybe some amenity space. And so they don't have to live in an apartment, but they also don't have to buy the house and deal with upkeep. And so perhaps from a, you know, a lifestyle point of view that this, the, the, the the, the argument, and I think it's a good argument is that this is more of a trend on a going forward basis that people are going to prefer to rent longer to delay their purchase of their, of their single family house. And, um, though their lifestyle may be changing to want to desire a detached single family home, they're just not interested in being a homeowner just yet. And so... A lot in the Sun belt right now it is you know where you can get permits. There's a lot of build-to-rent activity, and there's a lot of institutional capital who wants you know who wants to to buy these houses. It's a way for them to deploy capital very quickly because you can buy houses you know 100 units at a time as opposed to to one at a time. They're brand new. Yeah, they're brand new. Exactly. Pretty
0: heterogeneous in terms of the stock.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's very. Uh, so you know, I'm sorry. That would be homogeneous. homogeneous. Yes. You get a uh, premium product that uh, that you can offer. And you, so you would expect a lower expense ratio as well. So that became, you know, with the cheap money of 2018 to 2021, uh, build to rent was kind of all the rage at, uh, at the national conferences. It's backed off just because of what the cost of capital has done. But I think, you know, Predium, this, this deal between Pretium and Dr Horton shows that that's, that was not a fad that's, it's a business model. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it.
0: Is it a business model that the average investor can compete in? Yeah. Great
1: question. So you mentioned the, uh, the ma- we run a mastermind. It's We run it as a nonprofit. The idea is to get great operators from all across the country together, share ideas in kind of like a, you know, safe space where everyone gets to know like each other. Cone of silence. No- nothing leaves the yeah. room. Right? Yeah. So we're not just like, puffing our chests out at each other the whole time. We're actually trying to share what's working, what's not working. There's uh, several, and so we, had, we hosted it in Baltimore this past weekend. And there's a number of uh, guys in the room there that are, that are built to rent. Some are built for sale, like they just do infill new construction with the goal to sell every property. There's an operator in, in Charlotte who has become a very active builder. I think he does maybe 15 or 20 a month, finding infill lots in the Charlotte Metro. Um, where I mean, he's buying lots between twenty and sixty grand a lot and then putting a, you know, putting a very similar, you know, he's got a couple different designs, mm-hmm. but putting a very similar, you know, three, two and a half, three, three and a half uh house on it. And on a current basis, you know, it's it's similar economics to what I was describing. He's in for two fifty, he's renting it for two thousand. There's not a tremendous amount of cash flow in the short term, sure, but he's making a bet on Charlotte in the long term and affordable housing. And I think that those are excellent bets. That that makes a ton of sense. And it works
0: because the land price is obviously low enough that he can make some spread there. I mean, I would think it's a a fairly tough game to be in right now because of the cost of uh, cost of capital, cost of labor, cost of materials. You know, those types of things. I would think would make it fairly difficult for a guy who. If you're doing twenty a month, yeah, you're getting some economies of scale there, right? But like for the guy who isn't doing twenty a month, how do you how do you compete with a guy who's doing twenty or with a guy who just with a preum who's just doing four thousand of them right now?
1: Yeah, there's certainly economies of scale to the home building business, period hard stop, right? I think that There are also some economies to scale to, to, you know, you can make that argument for renovations as well. But my experience has always been that the operator who's on the ground, who's probably GCing it himself, right? If he doesn't have volume, then he's got the time to GC it himself, Mm -hmm. you know, pay, you know, inspect on Friday, pay on Friday that, you know, as opposed to having net 30 terms with your, with your vendors that you can, there's some cost savings in that as well. And then also at the end of the day, the, the, um, it's difficult to operate at scale because you have to find a lot of inventory, right? So you have to, you have to feed that. You, once you build that pipeline, you have to feed it, right? right? So you need to buy. You need to buy. You're a little bit more motivated buyer at that point. Whereas I think an operator at smaller scale who's fine doing you know three, four, six deals a year mm-hmm. can be pickier about their deal selection and frankly, make the money on the buy uh, a little bit better than somebody who says, hey, I need to buy 200 of these this year. Yeah. Like what you got? Yeah. Um, so we see people who like, who are able to, to, you know, balance the scales at all different levels of scale through, you know, through
0: where you spend your energy. Sure. One of the things that you said a few minutes ago with getting back to sort of where the institutional guys are and everyone looking at them over the last you know year or so, or really the last several years of, you know, how the hell are these guys buying at a hundred, 110%, 115%? And it's this notion of, uh, right now if you take a look at them now yes they're on the sidelines but lest any of you believe that they've stopped being in the game they're they're just sort of letting the letting the the uh, the dust settle trying to figure out where the market's going to land but so they haven't stopped they're absolutely not stopping in the residential space in fact i many would argue that it's only going to heat up again more importantly the average investor the main street investor should not be stopping right now their competitive advantage has always been the ability to go out and find great deals needles in the haystack as we like to say right and so speak to that jack like you know what those guys really should be doing right now, in, in light of this market.
1: Yeah, certainly. Uh, so, like, there is definitely a, a higher cost of capital, right? Which means that the institutional buyer isn't there as much because that was really the game that they did better than we did,
0: right? And So you could get fat, dumb, and happy selling to those guys with, yeah. you know, your ridiculous wholesales, right? Yeah, all good. You know, which, which is, you know, it's all good. No right. Power to you. <laughs> Don't hate the player. The
1: uh, I think for, at a moment in time right now, where we've got much lower levels of transaction volume and you don't have that buyer opportunity, that institutional out, it means that what we have done, always done well, which is buy well, uh, is more important than ever. And so the you know the average wholesaler or just the guy in the market who figured out what the institutional buy box was and was just backfilling to that. Yeah, he's just taking orders. Yeah, exactly, he's just taking orders. That's super hard right now, super hard right now. But if you built a an off-market deal platform over the past couple of years, we're still finding deals that way at lower volumes, but also the competition is start, it has been falling out for the past six months, and I think continues to fall out because that is getting tougher. So there's, there's certainly, I think, a calling of the herd right now uh, from a real estate investor point of view. And those that, as you pointed out, have always been good at acquisitions. There's always, you know, m- you know money's made on the buy, yep. you know, is a you know, term that we've thrown, out, you know, thrown around for years. And, and that, that remains true. So when you can find a deal and your cost basis is, you know, 70, 80% or less uh, of value, you've made money there already. And the cost of capital is a moment in time factor. So you may have more or a little bit less cash flow, but you've you've found a good deal at that point and should and can should continue
0: to buy as many of those as you possibly can. My fear, and maybe you could speak to this, my fear is that we've seen a lot of exuberant buying we've seen a lot of guys and gals who have been really eager to buy and that even though they've set up acquisition machines those acquisition machines have been able to be a little fat dumb and happy because they know that they had the out Mm -hmm. with the institutional guy or you know the the maybe the the greater fool, as we like to say, right? And so for those who are listening right now in the audience, it's time to be better. It's time to get that acquisition machine really right and tight and not take the marginal deals uh, that you may have taken in the past and really start focusing on the, I guess, the, the deals that are going to be at that 70% gap.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. I think that the, it's probably a better time now. The easy stuff was, was nice, right? But it's probably a better time now for the talented uh, main street investor. Mm-hmm. For example, where the cheap money is right now is that the seller has an existing mortgage. And so doing, you know, subject 2 we're seeing a lot of comeback into subject two right now Push, yep. because those, there's cheap financing there in place. Uh, creative financing deals with sellers who've got a lot of equity where they're willing to take uh, either first or a second back those kind of creative things that frankly, institutional capital just can't do because they can't really scale it. Mm-hmm. You can still make a lot of money on the deal, you know, doing deals that way with those tools in your bag that, that the other folks just don't have. And so I think there's going to be, there's kind of a resurgence of kind of more old school creative real estate investing strategies because the chat capital is no longer cheap that has now, you know, the, the the competition that relied on that is also now just gone. And so having those, you know, being able to look in the whites of the eyes of the seller, figure out what their pain points are, figure out what their problems are, and come up with solutions to solve those problems using all the tools on the table right now is, I think, having a
0: resurgence. Yeah, I think if you have had the, the pleasure of being a real estate investor uh, as long as we've had uh, since... Two thousand four, two thousand five timeframe, you've sort of seen the cycles, the the wild economic cycles, right? And so it, it's always been a game of spreads. Uh, you know, are we going to be able to make a spread on capital versus our purchase and uh, acquis- and, and uh, rehab costs? But even more so, I think that we've we saw this wild shift of, you know, early two thousands there was, you had to look hard for deals. It was mostly, you know, we were all doing our direct mail and and off market stuff. And then, but an abundance of capital. Then 2007, eight, there became capital restrictions, capital contractions, but then deals became, Mm -hmm. you know, flowing in the streets with REOs and short sales and things like that. Don't you feel like we're sort of coming through that cycle again, Jack, where we're, we're getting a pullback in capital? Guys have to be way better at at, uh, at acquisition at this point, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that there's going to be a calling of the herd as a result of that, right? There, there has you know we had that 10 year period of home uh, strong home price appreciation and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper capital that just allowed, frankly, allowed more and more people to be to get into this space. Yeah. And now those tailwinds are not there, and frankly, they've become headwinds. And so I think we're going to see fewer and fewer operators on a going
0: forward basis until we reach some point of stability in the market, right? How much of that creative sort of financing, I, I'm hearing guys talk about it endlessly right now. Yeah, yeah. How they're How they're really starting to sharpen their skills in terms of being able to make different offers to sellers. How much are you hearing that? Oh, I think
1: a tremendous amount. It's It, w- it went from that was zero portion of the deals to as much as a quarter to a third of you know kind of just bread and butter wholesale deals or sorry off market deals mm-hmm. that ends up being the the difference maker to getting the deal you know because of some s- some creative thing that they were able to do on the structuring side they were able to offer a little bit more or solve a problem or offer a solution that somebody else didn't even ask about because they just threw out a cash number and so you know Digging deep into the seller's problems and figure, finding out where there's opportunities to add value to the seller in a creative structuring way, I think you know right now it's probably a quarter to a third of the deals that are happening are, are happening with that in, with, 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 uh, with those uh,
0: structural features in mind, and I expect that to continue frankly, or to increase. Frankly. Yeah. All right, Jack, so what do you say we tie it all up with Bo here in the last few minutes that we have in, in this episode for the listener? It's clear that we should always be keeping an eye on what Wall Street's doing in the business. They move markets. They've moved uh, the market that we're in. And it's clear right now that sort of this pullback, this sitting on the sidelines thing is temporary, and it's probably more financially driven. So then let's talk about then the why real quick and what the average investor should be focused on uh, in terms of the market over the next 12 months or so.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I think that... As, as you said, it's important to keep tabs on Wall Street to understand why they're doing what they're doing, mm-hmm. but not necessarily to follow them or not necessarily to do what they're doing. Right. Because as we saw that sometimes often they're working off of, of different assumptions than we are. Yeah. They were working off, to, off of a two and a half percent cost to capital when we were working off of a four and a half percent cost to capital. Now, understanding that, would give you the insight that there's a phenomenal selling opportunity. We can these guys have a competitive advantage that we don't have. Let's go get them inventory and help them fill that buy box. Sure. And that was like that was a phenomenal move over the past couple of years, right? Today that's not the case. They don't have that that competitive advantage. That doesn't mean that it's a bad time to invest in American residential real estate. It just means that that out is is not there right now and so you're going to have less competition from the institutions in in the markets where they're very active that said also understanding that that they don't have that access to cheap financing so our access to cheap financing is also not there and and frankly even worse mm-hmm. and so a pivot from a strategy point of view to opportunities that aren't reliant upon that more probably a little bit more flipping because we haven't seen prices come down that much in versus buy and hold yeah versus on a relative basis versus buy and hold mm-hmm. so like we've gone into our pipeline and grabbed a couple marginal rental deals and said, Hey, you know what? Screw it. Just flip it. Like, we'll just take the money and run because we're not going to make much, if any spread for the first
0: five years. This is coming from a rental guy, this yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it pains me It <laughs> pains
1: me to, to not keep every house. But we, 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 that's exactly something that we've done is to pivot more, a little bit more towards flipping. Um, because the, we were going to have so much money stuck into the refi and the return and the, uh, the, net cash flow that we were going to have on that was much thinner than it was before based off of these these new assumptions so maybe on, you know on a on a percentage basis you go a little bit more flip for the next couple of years mm-hmm. and also look for opportunities that wall street can't take advantage of to find interesting ways to structure a deal maybe find some cheap money from the seller and pull a couple more creative financing strategies out of your toolkit to make deals work, which gives you a, a competitive advantage over both the institutional bid as well as the other guys in your market who are just not as you know as creative with those structures as, as you're going to be.
0: Yeah, if you're not uh, down with sub two financing, if you're not uh, well versed in being able to explain to a seller perhaps the capital gains hit that they'll be taking by selling the property all at once to you rather than maybe doing some owner financing over, over a longer period of time and being able to present that to the seller in a way that makes sense to them. A lot of people have no idea, Jack. I, I uh, was talking to an investor friend the other day in Austin, and the people who he meets with generally have no idea until about six, eight months after they sell the house that you know, their basis was you know, $30,000 because they bought it in 1960 and now they're right. selling for 600 grand. They have no idea what the tax hit is going to be on that game until they meet with their accountant several months later. And now it's a big surprise. And so this friend of mine who uh, lives down in, um, it's actually a guy, a coach who lives down in Austin. He's been great at being able to meet with a seller and explain all of that up front. And it's a real eye-opening experience for many. So I'd highly recommend that that folks get well versed in that and being able to present that to uh, the average seller out there because you're gonna come across that a lot. Yeah. Um, so great episode. I hope you guys got a lot out of it. As always, you can get the show notes. The link will be in the description, but it's real investor radio.com forward slash notes for all of today's uh, stories that we uh, reference, graphs, things like that. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. Please, as always, leave a comment, ask any questions that we might address in an upcoming episode. But Jack, thanks once again. Absolutely. Pleasure as always. We'll talk to you guys soon. Take care.